fire, and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third Agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Just imagine how big that, that would be. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we just again come before you, Lord, and Lord, we pray that our, our breath will be taken away today by what we see, by what we know is coming. Lord, encourage our hearts. God, encourage the heart of every believer in this room today. Lord, reminding us of what's coming. And Lord, anybody who's here that doesn't know you, convict them today, Lord, of their need to turn to Jesus now. To speak, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. So today what we're going to do is kind of like a 30,000 foot view of this. If you are interested in a deeper, in-depth, verse-by-verse look, I encourage you to go to our church Facebook or church YouTube page. And uh, Brother David Thomas did, I think, a five-week series on heaven where he went very, very deep, especially into these 
uh, verses um, in chapter 21 and 22. But today we're going to kind of do just a 30,000 foot view. So it has been pointed out that there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible and all but four of them describe what takes place under the curse. So strangely enough, in its first two chapters, the devil is not there. And in its last two chapters, the devil is not there. Therefore, the first two chapters of Genesis and the final two chapters of the book of Revelation show us life as God intended for it to be. Or life as God will make it, free from every last trace of sin and its consequences. Which begs the question for us, what are we hoping for? Are we just hoping for a life apart from bad things or are we hoping for more? According to Titus 2.3, it says this, We are awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Meaning, we're not just hoping for a world free of bad things. We're hoping for Jesus. We're hoping for His return. Therefore, we wait for Him. And there's a delay a 2,000-year delay right now between his first coming and his second coming, which leads us to the first of four truths today. The first is this, the delay before eternity. The delay before eternity. So we are eternal beings. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity in our hearts, meaning that we are living in light of eternity and we are longing for eternity. And this magnifies a few realities. First of all, during this delay, we are living between two worlds. We're living between two worlds. According to 1 Peter 2.11, we are pilgrims or sojourners in this world. Yet at the same time, according to Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of a world to come. So we're pilgrims in this world, but we already have citizenship in another world. Revelation 21 reminds us that this world is not our home. We are just passing through. This country is not our final destination. Therefore, our greatest longing should be for that place where we will dwell the longest, right? Our greatest longing should be the place that we will dwell the longest, which is um, eternity in heaven forever. A letter to Dognatus, it was written at the end of the 4th century, plainly describes our status. Listen to what it says. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. In the words of Joni Erickson Tata, we pilgrims walk the tightrope between earth and heaven, 
feeling trapped in time, yet with eternity beating in our hearts. Our unsatisfied sense of exile is not to be solved or fixed while here on this earth. Our pain and longing make sure that we will never be content, but that is good. It is to our benefit that we do not grow comfortable in a world destined for decay. So in this delay, we are living between two worlds and we are living between two times. So we are living between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And in one sense, the kingdom of Christ is a present reality because the king lives in us. So the kingdom in one sense is a present reality because Jesus lives in us. Yet in another sense, we are awaiting the declaration of Revelation eleven fifteen. That declaration, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So we're waiting for that. Which means that as we live between two worlds and as we live between two times, we do so with conviction and confidence that we are living for one purpose. And we are living, what's that purpose? For his kingdom to come and his will to be done. We're wanting his kingdom to come. We're wanting his will to be done. And what does this mean? If you have your Bibles, you can look at 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, or we're going to put it on the screen for you. Here's what it means. In the words of Peter, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, or day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, listen, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So brothers and sisters, we live holy lives looking for and according to that verse, hastening the day of the Lord. There is a delay before eternity, but don't ever be convinced or don't ever um, begin to doubt that Christ isn't coming again because he is. He is, which leads us to the second truth, a decision that affects eternity. So there's a decision. Revelation 21, again, gives us a picture of God's final blessing and God's final judgment. And it makes sense when we remember that God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He had the first word in all of history, and God gets the last word in all of history. And if you look at Revelation 21.6, here's what the last word is. The last word is, it is done. It's done. Every single person in this room and in all of history will one day meet God as the Omega, as the end. But when you do that, you will then meet him again as the Alpha, the beginning of a new life. Whether with him or 
apart from him for those who do not know him. And the point is this, those who revere him, those who revere the king will experience inexpressible joy forever. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 21. It says this, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And God says of that person, I will be his God. You can't pay God for the water of life. How do you get it then? You thirst for it. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. So dear soul, whatever your state may be, you can surely receive Christ for he comes to you like a cup of cold water. Christ comes to us as a cup of cold water, and all we have to do is drink. That's all we have to do. We drink, and it leads to joy. I love the words of, and this is, let me say this, it leads to joy. I'm speaking that to a bunch of people who look like you have no joy right now. But it leads to joy because Psalm 1611 says, in your, I'm preaching way better than you're responding, just so you know. Uh, Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what we have in him. For those who revere him will get inexpressible joy, but yet on the other side, those who reject the king will experience irreversible justice. Look at chapter 21, verse 8 again. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And there are a few thoughts here. The first thought is that John is again drawing our attention to people in the church that he addresses throughout this book who profess to be Christians but who compromise with this world over and over and over again, whose lives show zero faith in Christ. People who cowardly turn from Christ. And according to Revelation 21.8, there will be no cowards in heaven. There'll be no cowards in heaven. So people who cowardly turn from Christ to this world proving that they had no part of Christ to begin with. Another thought is that the unsaved are pictured here in their overall unbelief. Therefore, verse 8 is not necessarily describing what qualifies or disqualifies people from the standpoint of their behavior on earth. How do I know that? Because here's what I know. There are people who once were cowards who are now Strong, courageous children of God. People who were once faithless who now have faith in him. People who were once murderers who are now with him. People who were once detestable and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and liars who are now new creations in Christ Jesus. Because that's what he is able to do. But what verse 8 shows is what kind of people cannot be a part of the eternal kingdom in the future. In the words of Bob Wilkin, he says, It is a mistake to think that this verse is describing the way the unsaved behaved here and now. This verse says nothing about the current behavior of believers or unbelievers. Rather, it concerns the eternal sinfulness of unbelievers. Meaning, listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, 24. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
meaning that unbelievers will die into a state of forever sinfulness. Forever they will remain sinners in their sin. And the point is that because unbelievers upon death are sealed permanently as those who are unjustified, they will remain sinners in God's sight forever. So there's a decision that affects eternity. Will we revere the king or will we reject the king? And the outcome of those two decisions could not be greater. Which leads us to the third truth. Now we have the delights of eternity. So some people read Revelation 21 and they immediately get out their tape measures and their charts and their decoder rings trying to figure it all out. And I would say, listen, don't miss the collision of images here. We have a city, a new heaven, a new earth, a bride, a temple. And in looking at the measurements here in chapter 21, you realize that Heaven, according to the word here, is shaped like a cube, which is weird. But this takes us back to the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament where the dwelling place of God among his people in the Holy of Holies was a cube. Meaning, don't miss this, that the picture is one massive holy of holies where God will again in heaven tabernacle or on earth tabernacle with his people. This is the picture. God will be with us. We will be with him. In fact, think about it. Three things I want to unpack here. First of all, we will be with him. We will be with him. Verse 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And it says, And God himself will be with them as their God. And let me give a very clear warning. We have to be very, very careful because in our American culture, we often visualize heaven in terms of the American dream meaning mansions, materialism, luxuries that we desire here. I've even heard people in the midst of such luxuries say things like, this must be what heaven must be like. Brothers and sisters, I beg you, don't go there. Don't allow your minds to go there. When we think about heaven, do not think about a place that has all the amenities of this world. Instead, think about a place that all the amenities of this world appear as trash before the presence of a holy God. Think about that world. All the amenities of this world appear as trash before the presence of God. For it is a place where death will be replaced by life. It's a place where night will be replaced by light, where corruption will be replaced by purity, where the curse will be replaced by a blessing. For the curse of Genesis 3 will be reversed and undone forever, yet don't miss it. What makes heaven heaven is not the absence of death or night or pain or tears or corruption or curses. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. So let me say it again. What makes heaven heaven is not the absence of anything. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. No longer will there be any sense of distance between us and God. Never again will God feel absent or remote. And in being with him, according to verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All of life's sorrows, the painful, demoralizing, condemning results of sin will be gone forever. And let me just say this, brothers and sisters, we can't do this ourselves. You can't wipe away your own tears, but God can. And he can wipe them away forever. 
forever. And then second, it says that death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, meaning that the debilitating effects of sin and suffering will be completely forever removed from us. Leading to five beautiful words, which is our second picture here, we will see his face. We will see his face. So the second picture here, we will see his face. In verse 4, it says it. They will see his face. For the first time since the fall of man, man will have absolute and undiminished perspective of God, both physically and spiritually. What, what Moses was denied in Exodus 33:20, Moses said, I want to see the face of God. And God said, no. What Moses was denied, we will experience forever. We will see his face. Fanny Crosby, a famous hymn writer, wrote a poem entitled, My Savior First of All. Because she was blind from birth, it meant that the first person that she would ever see would be her Savior. And listen to these words. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to see my Savior first of all. We will see him we will see him we will see him and then third we will reign with him we will reign with him look at verse 5 of chapter 22 it says and night will be no more they will need no light of lamp or sun for the lord god will be their light and they will reign forever and ever and it seems weird that this is inserted in a sentence like this no night no sun and we shall reign with him forever. That doesn't go together until you realize that man originally lost his capacity to reign over creation because he listened to one who exemplified darkness. So when Adam and Eve chose to listen to the serpent, chose to listen to one who exemplified darkness, they lost their ability to reign over the earth as God had intended. And our reigning with the Lord is in the eternal state pictures perfect fellowship with him. So a people, us, who have trusted in Christ, who have been resurrected with Christ, will be restored to rule and reign with him. Meaning we don't just sit with Christ in a weird sense that we can't figure all out. We get to reign with Christ. We get to reign, not, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done and what he gives to us. These are the delights of eternity. We will be with him. We will see his face. We will reign with him, which leads us lastly to a description of eternity. And although the Bible doesn't tell us everything that we would like to know about heaven, it tells us more than enough to let us know that eternity with our God will be more than wonderful. Eternity with our God will be more than wonderful. Three other things I want to unpack here. First of all, heaven will be a place of worship. 
Heaven will be a place of worship. Look at Revelation 5.12 on the screen. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Heaven will be a place of endless hallelujahs. Heaven will be a place of endless hallelujahs. We will worship Him as we forever remember what He did for us. As I said a few weeks back, I believe that the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars of Jesus. For in Revelation 5, it says there was a lamb who had been slain. But let me also say this. Forever worship does not mean that all we're going to do in heaven is sing. Now, that's going to be, we're going to be singing. That's not all we're going to do in heaven. For worship, don't miss this. Here's where we miss the mark. We miss the mark so bad because worship, worshiping God can be done in a multitude of ways. Meaning you can worship God as you sing, but you can also worship God as you think. You can worship God as you speak. You can worship God as you talk to people and have interaction. You can worship God as you read. You can worship God as you drive. You can worship God as you do your day-to-day -day activities, doing it all for His glory. So we can worship God in a multitude of ways, and in heaven, we actually will. So heaven will be a place of worship. And then secondly, heaven will be a place of wonder. Heaven will be a place of wonder. In chapter 1, verse 17, John writes, When I saw him, meaning Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. So most people know that we'll worship God in heaven. But what, what we often don't grasp is how thrilling it will be. Multitudes of God's people from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language will gather to praise God for his greatness, his wisdom, his power, his grace, his mighty work of redemption in all of our lives. And overwhelmed by his magnificence, we will fall on our faces before him. We will never come to the end of knowing him, loving him, exploring him, growing in our knowledge of him. Yes, in heaven, even though it's eternity, each day will be a new day that we will learn more and more of his magnificence and glory. Amen. Yet, not only will heaven be a place of worship and wonder, third, heaven will be a place of work. Heaven will be a place of work. Listen to Revelation 22, 3. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants, us, will worship Him. Did you know that the idea of service pervades the whole book of Revelation? You know, many people think of Revelation as only, or excuse me, as heaven, as a place of, of rest, but it's also a place of work. They go together. The idea, the, the picture is in heaven, our, our work will not be a burden as it is here. It will be a delight. Because in heaven, get this, we will never forget the object of our service. Work will be a delight in heaven because we'll never forget the object of our service. And also, whatever we do in heaven will have eternity stamped on it. Think of that. Would your attitude towards your work today change if you knew everything you did, every ounce of energy you expanded, every investment you made would last forever? What a legacy. And that's the heritage of what we'll have in heaven. Heaven won't be boring because our work won't be boring. It will be exciting and it will be enduring. So we see this picture of there's a delay 
before eternity. There's a decision that absolutely affects eternity. But there are delights of eternity. And there are descriptions here. And let me just end this way. It's impossible to imagine the beauty and the glory and the bliss of our eternal home, of what God has in store for us. Human minds, our minds can't even think of the wonders of heaven. Let me just say this. If you were to think of the most glorious place you could ever, ever think of and multiply it by a million, you would still fall short of what God has in store for us. You and I would fall short. So I want to end this morning with the words of Charles Swindoll, who has highlighted 12 things that will not be present in eternity. 12 things. I want to just show you those. I'm going to read these. 12 things not present in eternity in heaven. Number one, no more sea. In the book of Revelation, sea is not the sea that we think of. It's chaos. It's sin. It's calamity. All those things will be gone. No more tears because hurtful memories will be restored and replaced. No more death because mortality will be swallowed up by life. No more mourning because sorrow will be completely, or our sorrow will be completely comforted. Number five, no more crying. The sound of weeping will be soothed in heaven. No more pain because all human suffering will be cured. No more thirst because God will graciously quench all of our desires. Number eight, no more wickedness because all evil will be be banished. Number nine, no more temple because the Father and Son are personally present with us. Number ten, no more night because God's glory will give eternal light. Number 11, no more closed gates because God's door will always be open. And number 12, no more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted that curse. Brothers and sisters, this is heaven and this is our home. Yet never forget, heaven is not just the absence of all of these things. It is the presence of God. Are you awaiting? Brothers and sisters, is that your home? Is that your home? If it is your home, are you longing for it like you should? Are you desiring it like you should? And if it's not your home, may today be the day of salvation for you. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to ask the musicians, Brother Frank, to come forward as we enter into this time. And let us pray together. Father, we just come before you in light of this amazing, wonderful, absolutely mind-blowing picture of our eternal reality. Those who know you, our eternal reality, with you forever. For that is heaven, that is our home. Lord, help us to set our minds there more than we do. Help us to live in light of eternity more than we do. Help us to rejoice in what's coming more than we do. Help us to pray, come Lord Jesus, more than we do. Lord, just fill our our hearts and our minds, Lord, with just the reality of what is in store for us. At the same time, Lord, praying for any who is here or who will be here today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Not just wanting a get-out-of-hell-free card, but wanting you, Jesus, for what you have done and what you forever will be to us. Our Savior forever.
finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.